Our scripture for this morning comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may t- make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, we are uh, closing out our series on the book of Colossians uh, this morning. Um, I, for one, am thrilled to be done with Colossians uh, because it has been a gut punch every week. Uh, I'm tired of Paul putting him in my place. Um, but it has been a, uh, at the same time, a beautiful, wonderful journey through this book. Um, we will begin Advent next Sunday, which I'm also looking forward to. Um, but as we close this out, let me just give a brief uh, reminder, a brief overview. Um, Paul wrote this book, he says over and over again, Paul wrote this book to a small, young church in Asia Minor, small town of Colossae. He wrote it from prison in Rome as he's awaiting trial and he writes it to them. He says this over and over. I'm writing this to you to mature you, to grow you, to grow you up in the mystery of God's grace. And so we come now to these last final words of the book. Now if you're reading along in your Bible as Ashley read for us our section, you would have noticed that there is a little section of words after what was read uh, and that is technically the closing uh, words of the book but that is what it was customary in that time at the end of a letter to write the personal address uh, to several people in the town. So Paul's saying, tell this person that and tell this person that and send my love to this person and my love to this person. And we could talk about that because all those peoples have, uh, have stories and names and things that were going on that we could dig into. Um, but this little section that was read for us, just verse two through six, is Paul's final address to the collective church in Colossae. It's Paul's final admonishment, his final words to mature them in the mystery of grace. And if you back way up, chapter one, Paul talks about the mystery of Jesus and this profound, supreme son of God who rules the heavens, who incarnated that he might buy a people back with his blood once and for all. And that, that Jesus who bought a people for himself now has turned his people into a new creation and they're new and they've got a, a new self and their old self is gone and their new self, he begins to talk about in chapter three that we've covered is it doesn't fit in the old clothes anymore, and the new self has new clothes. And the new clothes fit the new self perfectly, clothes of humility and compassion and forgiveness and gentleness. And those old clothes of bitterness and rage and, and, and deceit and greed, those don't fit you anymore. You have a new set of clothes as a new creation. And then last week, Paul took us into the family. He says, hey, this new self needs to work itself out primarily at home, in your family systems. That's the best kind of litmus test for this new self finding its, its way. So now he closes with this final encouragement, even this final challenge for the new self. One final word to the church in Colossae as he's wrapping up this theme on the new self. And this little section is, is certainly power-packed. These, these uh, few verses have a lot in them, but as we walk through them, there is one theme verse that we could pluck out that will be our guide for the entire time, and it's verse 5. We throw that back up, throw the opening slide back up, um, or the, the passage back up, Verse 5 says this, this is kind of our theme for the morning, says this, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. 
Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. The whole passage, Paul's final word of admonishment and encouragement to the church in Colossae is the new self's relationship with time. Time. Such a funny thing. It's kind of like oxygen where we're, we're, we're engaging with it. We're experiencing time like we're experiencing oxygen, but we're not, we're not thinking about it. We don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about our time. We, we actually, subconsciously, I believe, we spend a lot of time working against the known reality that I have a limited amount of time. And I'm working subconsciously against the, the truth that I know that I'm not in control of when I will be out of time to spend. And so I build my days and I build my weeks and I build my life centered around this idea. Again, I, I don't think I'm conscious of it or we're conscious of it, but I know I have a limited amount of this resource and so I will maximize this limited resource that I have. And I don't like thinking about its limitedness and I certainly don't like thinking about the fact that I can't control what's coming next with it. And so in response to the fear of knowing that it's limited, I want my time, therefore, to begin to be significant. I want it to matter. I want not to waste it. I want it to count. I want it to be remarkable and rememberable. And I want to look back at all of my time spent, and I want it to be something I'm proud of. But we have this limited amount to spend, and subconsciously we buck against it. And so I become the one in charge of how I will spend my time. You don't get to tell me how I'm going to spend my time because I've associated definitions and values for what means it is a good use of my time. And I will be the one then to tell you how my time can and will be spent. We define what the best use is when it comes to making my time matter and making my time enjoyable. But perhaps nothing in all of the created order challenges my view of myself than forcing me to think about my relationship with time. It forces me to deal with my finite self. Because when I start to think about time, when I start to give time to time, when I start to ponder the reality that I have a limited amount of time, it forces me to realize I'm not infinite. I'm not infinite in my abilities. I'm not infinite in my looks. Close. I'm not infinite, <laughs> I'm not infinite in my ability to control anything. I'm not, I'm not infinite in my ability to stay um, on top of the world. I'm not, I'm not on top of or in charge of my ability to not waste away. And so all of my achievements and my accomplishments and my accolades and my significance, when I start measuring those things that I give my life to, making my life matter and count and be worth something, Time then forces me to deal with the fact that I am not infinite and not in charge of any of that. Time bows to nobody. In the words of Hootie and the Blowfish, I know all of you were thinking about them this week. Time, why do you punish me? Why do you punish me and force me to think about the fact that I don't have infinite amounts of you? And the more we spend of our time going after these things, the more we realize time will not bend its will to me. I'm forced to bend my knee to time. Ask anybody who's become an empty nester how they think about time. They don't think about it the way that you think about it before you have kids or once your kids are getting older. And then once they leave, their relationship with time, they've been forced to realize I'm not going to be here forever. So we do things to try to make us feel like time is not winning the war. 
And so from Botox to caffeine to exercising to infidelity, we wage war against time. I want my time to feel a certain way, and I want to be able to look at my time and say things about it and have you say things about how I spent my time. And all of it is driven by this reality that I hate the idea that my time is limited and I'm not in control of when it ends. And so I will spend my time trying to pretend like time isn't limited. So here's a question. How do you spend your time? Or maybe a better question for you is, how do you define what is the best use of your time? And if you don't know the answer to that, you need to grab somebody that you know and that knows you and show, seriously, show them your calendar for the last month and they will tell you what you think is the best use of your time. We tend to measure it with words like this, productive get to the end of the day or the end of a season or the end of a a task? Was I productive with my time or efficient? Did I use my time efficiently? Was I able to maximize the time that I had or did I waste it away? Or if you're an Enneagram 7 like somebody that I know, was my time enjoyable? Was my time exciting? Did I maximize it for the fullest possible amount of pleasure? Because I don't have time to not be having fun. I don't have time to not be enjoying the time that I have. And so if you approach me or, your, or the relationship with you or the tasks you've got before me or my family or my job, if any of them threaten how I want my time to feel, then you will get rage from me because I've associated the best use of my time with fun and ease and lightheartedness. And so let's not do anything that would force me to not have time be spent that way. But Paul here is suggesting, he says it, there is a best use of your time. And by implication, therefore, when he says there is a best use of your time, there is a best way to use your time, he is implying there is a not best way to use your time. So the question that should be piercing us right now is, who is it that gets to tell you what the best use of your time is? Because Paul seems to think there is a best use, and he may be implicating me or accusing us of not spending our time in the best possible way. But one of the best things, one of the first things that a wise new self, because remember we're still in that section of Colossians where Paul is talking about the new self and the old self. One of the things, one of the wise things that the new self knows in its relationship to time is that I may not be the best judge or decider of how to spend my time. It would admit humbly that I am not in charge of me anymore, and so maybe I'm not the best judge and jury on what is the best use of my time. And wisdom would say, he uses that word here, walk in wisdom with your time. Wisdom would say, the first thing it would say is, you may not be the best one to decide what is the best use of your time. Biblically speaking, wisdom, we're not gonna uncover all of biblical wisdom, but he does use that word here. We studied wisdom, biblical wisdom, this summer a little bit. But biblically speaking, wisdom, one of the things it would mean, especially in relationship to our time, is that you are a realist. You are down to earth. You know reality. You're not living in a fairy tale land, and you're not pretending to be something that you're not. Wisdom deals with reality. And a wise person knows what life is really like. And so what life is really like in relationship to time It says this, this is wisdom's first declaration to our sense of time. Do you know you are finite and not infinite? Do you know you don't have an unlimited amount of time? And do you know you can't do all the things that you want to do in the time that you have? 
You are finite and not infinite. You are not needed to sustain the universe. So wisdom may be telling you this. Go to sleep. Go to bed. Like you don't need to be waking up at the hour you're waking up or going to bed at the hour you're going to bed. You need to go to sleep. And that actually may be a practice of you stepping into, like with my body, I'm gonna step into the belief that I'm not needed to sustain my world or the world. I actually am gonna like act by faith and go to bed tonight. I'm gonna get a great night's sleep. And that would be good for me. It would be me applying wisdom to my time that I can't go at the pace that I go and get the lack of sleep that I tend to get. I'm gonna apply wisdom to my time and go to bed. In Mark chapter four, in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus chapter four tells a parable, really short parable. It's like three lines. It tells a really short story. He says, hey, there's this farmer who goes out and he plants some seed and then he waters the seed and he works really hard and then he goes to sleep. And then he wakes up in the morning and the, and the seed has started to grow and this is what it says, and he knows not how. He doesn't know how the seed is growing. It's magic in the ground. But here's all that he does. He works hard and he goes to sleep. And he's not concerning himself with the mysteries of the unknown. I don't know how this, how does that seed thing work? And I'm just working hard and I go to bed. I'm practicing the reality that I don't need to be awake at all hours worrying about how's all this gonna work out and this business move and this, this career move and this relationship and how I'm actually gonna do what I've been called to do and then go to bed. And I'm not gonna pretend that I'm infinite. The fact that Jesus includes in that parable the fact that the farmer went to sleep is part of the punch of the parable. Everybody knows he went to sleep. Nobody thought that he stayed up all night worrying about it. But Jesus is saying, you need to go to bed like this guy did, who practiced his faith in the belief that he wasn't infinite. And he acknowledged the fact that I don't have to understand everything in order to get some rest. I can just go to bed. This may sound comical, but do you know that getting a good night's sleep takes an incredible amount of faith? It is a great practice for your spiritual health to get a good night's sleep. We live in one of the most driven cities in America. Everybody here, maybe not in music, but everybody here is here to be something. You didn't move here to take a back seat to life. You moved here to do something, achieve something, be something, gain something, whether that's fame or success or a family or notoriety or whatever. You're here to do something. And so sleep maybe threatens the idea that you don't have control over you, your advancement in the world. And Paul here and Jesus here would say, you might just need to go to bed. Psalm 127 in the Old Testament, it's one of the cries of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalm cries and says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. It's arrogance that you get up at the hour that you get up at and go to bed at the hour you go to bed at. It's pride that's doing that to you because you think the world needs you to stay awake. You at least think that your world needs you to stay awake. What do you think it says about you and I that if we live on average 75 years, that you will be asleep for 25 of those years? That for a third of your life, you will spend one third of your life like a dead person, motionless in bed. You will not be doing anything. And the Lord who created the universe could have made mankind with the ability to not need sleep. But he built it into the DNA. He built it into the social order that you've got to practice every night not being infinite. You've actually got to go to bed and pretend to actually believe I'm not needed to make the world go on. You know what happens while you're sleeping? The other hemisphere is doing great. Like they don't need you. 
and your world, you wake up and your world is still here. And so the sleep is meant to be, sleep literally is meant to be a miniature parable to you and I every day that says to you, you're really not needed to make the world go round. Like teach that parable to yourself and remind yourself of that parable every night when you go to sleep and every morning when you wake up. Sleep is this broken record that comes around with the same message every day. You are not sovereign. You are not sovereign. You are not sovereign. You are not sovereign. You're not in charge and you're not even really needed because everything's working just fine while you are dead in bed. You're, you, like your usefulness is, it has an ax taken to it every day. What do you think it says about you and me that the Lord built that into what it means to be human? How much do you think God needs you to be maximizing your time when that same God built into your, your experience of time that a third of it you would be doing nothing? How much of your humanity and your limitations do you think he wants to be regularly reminding you of that you would embrace and force you to remember your finite frame every day? He's built it into your rhythm that you and I would know I am not infinite. How much do you think there is to learn about what the best use of my time is when I'm forced to spend a third of every day being totally useless? What do you think that has to say to this conversation where Paul says, there is a best use of your time? And we hear that in our modern achievement world and we go, oh yeah, there's a best use. I need to get up at this early, I need to have these priorities, I need to have these goals, I need to work towards this, and then I need to go to sleep. I might need to eat some in there too, I need to make all these phone calls and all these emails. But we hear best use of our time and we start strategizing and Paul here, Jesus here, the Bible here is saying, hey, the whole conversation about what is and isn't the best use of your time should at least start with the understanding, the wisdom that would say, yeah, but a third of your time is going to be taken up with you doing nothing. And that's actually healthy for you to remember that you're human and not infinite. Because Paul here has a vision for the new self as it closes out this book of Colossians. The new self and the new self's relationship with time being spent. So how does Paul want to guide the new self into thinking about its time? Throw up the first slide for me one more time. Starting in verse 2 and 3. Remember, he's talking about time best spent. Listen to what he says. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison. So Paul here wants to talk about the best use of your time in two times in two verses he's talking about prayer that's insane because prayer many times for me is something i don't have time to do and all i've got is time for like a little quick hit of it but the idea that paul would be talking about best use of your time and now two times over he's talking about prayer now hear me on this please understand i know the moment that i'm in church and i start talking about prayer there's all these shame buckets that we start bathing in. Everybody's like, well, I don't pray enough. I don't, I don't do that enough. I know, I know, preacher man, I'm supposed to be praying more. Paul says nothing about amount of time in prayer. He doesn't say, well, you sleep a third of your life. You should be praying for a third of your life too if you want to be a real Christian. He doesn't say that. What Paul says is he gives a posture of prayer. He gives a stance as the Christian, as the new self would approach prayer. This is not meant to be a measuring stick for you to feel like you are or aren't living up to how much Paul says you and I should be praying. What he is getting at is just like sleep is a, an idea, a posturing that would remind you in prayer that you are finite and not infinite. 
He says there, continue steadfastly in prayer. And that is not a time stamp. That's a position of the heart. That phrase, continue steadfastly, carries with it this connotation of, I need to continually and always be doing this, and I, I know that I will always be needing this. Like I'm on the journey of life with it, and I always need it as a companion. It's like Samwise and Frodo. Sam saying, I'm, nev- I'm never leaving you. I will go with you to Mordor. Paul's saying, that's the kind of approach you need with prayer. Like you need that kind of, that kind of posture. I will always be needing this. On the journey, I will always be needing this idea. Then he gives two descriptors. Be watchful in it with thanksgiving. Watchful and thankful prayer. And again, please hear this. This is getting at, it's, it's all getting at the same center of, of what Paul's talking about. Watchful prayer means that when you pray, you are, it's, it's like when you're driving down the road, this is before the days of, of Siri and Google Maps, is before the days where, where your phone would take you somewhere, and imagine that you're driving somewhere where you don't know where you're going, and it's foggy and it's rainy, and you're following someone there. Your commitment to watching that car is very high. I will stay watching this car in front of me because I need to know where I'm going, and if I miss the turn or if I get lost from them, I will be lost. And I will not make it to where I'm going. And so Paul's saying, be watchful in it. It's the approach that acknowledges, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how to be a dad. I don't know how to be a husband. I don't know how to be a pastor. I don't know how to be a Christian. And I've got to stay close to this car that's leading me. And maybe, just maybe, that car might pull off on the side of the road. We might sit there for a couple hours. And I'll go, okay, I can't go faster than that car ahead of me because I don't know where I'm going. And so in order to be watchful, it's a different set of lenses as it, as it relates to my life. I don't know what I'm doing. And so watchful prayer admits, I don't know what I'm doing. I need somebody to show me where I'm going. And you can't be watchful in prayer if you don't think you need to be praying. If that car wants to take a left turn, you go, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm trusting this is where I'm supposed to go because I haven't taken my eyes off of the car in front of me. And then thankful prayer, grateful prayer, he says. Again, it's intertwined. It's the same theme. It means that if you're a beggar, if you're a pauper, you're grateful for whatever gets thrown in the hat. That I know I deserve nothing, I know I'm needy, I know my level of neediness, and so anything that comes to me, I'm grateful for. When the car turns left and doesn't speed off and leave me, I go, thank you, thank you, because I would be lost without it. You've heard it said that beggars can't be choosers, that's true. Beggars also can't be entitled. If you actually believe that you are a beggar and are needy, then you can't be entitled when things come to you or not. That thankful prayer actually assumes the heart posture of neediness. So here's what Paul's saying. Thankful and watchful prayer. Those two things coming together. Paul is suggesting that one of the best uses of your time would be to see yourself as someone who constantly needs prayer because you don't know where you're going. And you need constant, steadfast prayer because you are in constant need of help and of aid and of rescue. Is anyone offended by that? Like that the first thing Paul would say is the the best use of our time would be for me to admit and acknowledge and practice, like sleep, my neediness and my finiteness, and that would lead me to watchful, thankful prayer. And that Paul would say, prayer would be a great use of your time. Prayer would be the best use of your time because you will be letting the Lord set the pace and set the agenda for your life. And it'll be, a great, it'll be the best use of your time. 
Because what you and I want to do is we want to get in like the, the, the single dash section of the road and pass the car in front of us, but it's a double line highway and you can't pass. That's what Paul's saying. You have to stay behind the lead car and let the pace of the lead car run your life. That's what he's saying. And it offends the achievers in here. It offends the doers in here. It offends those of us who feel the weight of not having enough time. It offends our, our ability to plan and plot and, and strategize and make sure all the ducks get in a row. When the, when the car in front of us is setting the pace, it offends my achievement self. In Luke chapter 10, uh, Jesus goes to one of his favorite houses, because he's at this house a lot, goes to the house of the sisters and roommates, uh, Mary and Martha. Martha, we're told, uh, is cleaning the house, playing the host, serving the guest, being very hospitable. And Mary, instead, the, the other sister, instead of playing the host, is sitting at Jesus' feet while he teaches. And Martha is livid at Mary. Martha's been sweeping, Martha's been setting up the charcuterie and all the things, you know, making it very Instagrammable. And, um, <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. And, uh, and she comes, she's so passive aggressive to Jesus, or to Martha, or to Mary. Martha is so passive aggressive to Mary. She literally comes to Jesus and she yells at Jesus. Listen to this accusation buried in the question that Martha asked Jesus. Lord, don't you care about me? Because I'm running around doing all the hosting and Mary is sitting at your feet. It, she literally says, Mary has left me to serve alone. And then listen, Mary's right there. We're told Mary's at Jesus' feet. Listen to how passive aggressive she is towards Mary. She's looks, looking at Jesus, she says, tell her to do something. Like, no Martha, you could tell her to do something because she's right there. But she doesn't want it, she's so mad at Martha, or so mad at Mary I can't even look at her. And then listen to how Jesus gently puts Martha in her place. Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. And he singularizes it. But one thing is needed. Mary has chosen it and it will not be taken from her. Jesus here says ever so boldly, there are many, 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 even good things to give our time to. There are great things to be spending your time with, but only one of them is needed. Only one of them is necessary, that you would sit at his feet. That's what prayer is. That's what Paul is saying. There are many things, many, many things to give your time to, but one is needed, that you would sit at his feet. Now, if that doesn't challenge our view of time, then maybe you're not hearing clearly. <laughs> and Jesus is not talking about, Paul is not talking about neglecting your job or neglecting your family and not doing all the things that you've been given the responsibility to do. What Jesus is talking about is that in the array, in the buffet of things to give your time to, you can choose a lot of great things like Martha is. Only one is needed. And it's that you would sit at his feet listening to him, speaking to him, receiving from him, being protected by him, crying out to him, asking him, being still with him. 
And in a town where fame and success are worshiped, in a town where the only thing that matters is what you're about to do next, in a town where people are literally crawling over each other to succeed, in a town where being entertained and being seen and being noticed are all competing for your time, the words of Jesus arrest us. They still us. They slow us down. One thing is needed. And that, that is a death blow to all the idols of our town because we hear best use of time and we associate different definitions with it and Jesus says only one thing is needed in the war for your time. It's that you would sit with me. And I'll set the agenda and I'll set the pace but you're trying to pass the car and get out ahead and make sure you maximize it and no one is asking you to maximize your time other than you. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, take the incarnate wisdom to be thy master and sit as a little child at his feet to learn with all your heart. That is all he asks of you. The right way to end your doings is by sitting down content with Jesus' doings. Here's how the new self approaches their view of time. The new self, the Christian, walks in the peace and the pace of letting the Lord set their agenda and set their time. I'm not called to do anything. One thing is needed, and he will set the agenda, and he will set the pace, and he will set the time. But I've taken control over my time, or I've, I've thought I have, that I get to decide what's best for my time, and I get to decide how to maximize it, and I get to decide what's pleasurable and what's leisurely and what will be best for me. And Jesus here, Paul here, is redefining that the new self walks in the peace and the pace of letting the Lord set their agenda. That's what it means to be steadfast in prayer. It's the same exact biblical concept. Paul is not saying that you have to go be praying 30 hours a day. What Paul is saying is, is there's a posture of prayer, watchful and thankful, that knows it needs prayer because I get out ahead of myself and I set my agenda and I decide what's best for my time, but maybe the Lord would slow it all down in the words of Spurgeon, and the right way to end my doings would be by sitting down content with Jesus' doings. And generally speaking, this passage tells us generally how Jesus sets our agenda. Very often, Jesus, when we are sitting at his feet like Mary, when we are sitting with him, letting him set the agenda, very often he sets the agenda to lift our eyes to those that aren't being seen by anybody else. Look at what Paul says a couple different ways in verse th 3 through 6. Can you put that back up there? We'll find verse 3 together. He says this, Pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious Season with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. When he uses that word there, walk in wisdom towards outsiders, that outsider word is so power-packed, it's like an atom bomb, because he's talking about outsiders in every sense of the word. The forgotten, the marginalized, 
those that are have-nots. Have-nots economically, have-nots socially, have-nots emotionally, have-nots spiritually. Anybody who the world is not noticing, that's what Paul says when he says outsiders. And Paul says, I want you, Colossian church, I want you, Midtown, to lift your eyes to those that nobody normally sees. That's who I'm telling you to set your eyes on. That's what I'm telling you to set your attention on. Paul is lifting our eyes to the outsider, the forgotten, and the neglected. And look at how he says to engage with them. Look at what he says about how to engage with the outsider, with the forgotten, with the have-nots. He says this, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Gracious speech, gentle speech, intentional speech, Mr. Rogers' speech is what he's talking about. Facing the world you live in, and look at what he says, so that you may know how to answer each person. Such thoughtfulness, such purposeful speech words so that you would know how to answer each person. Not so that you would know how to answer people in a general sense. Paul's slowing that way down so that you would know how to answer each person in every interaction that you have. Do you know what you need in order to treat people and speak to people this way? Full of grace, full of gentleness, full of intentional, purposeful ways to answer each, you'll know how to answer each person. Do you know what you need? Time. Like, I can't do that when I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I can't be hurried and do this. I can't do drive-by Elliot-style conversations and just shooting from the hip. If I'm going to do what Paul is saying and actually give thoughtful, graceful what each person needs to hear from me, or maybe what each person that the Lord wants me to speak to that he would give to me to give them, I can't do that when I'm in haste. I have to slow down. I have to give them, each them that I encounter, I have to give them the time of listening to them and actually hearing them and not thinking about what I'm going to say or thinking about how they're thinking about what I'm about to say. I've got to actually hear them. And then I've got to give time thinking about what do they need to hear from me. Now that I've heard them, what might they need from me? Answering each person is so different than thinking about general practices for relationships. It's slowing everybody way down And Paul is urging the church here to spend its most valuable resource on people, their time. That people are worth your time. That you would give people the kind of time it takes to be gracious with them. That you would know how to always give them what they need from you with your speech. Do you know what actually you might have to do? This sounds crazy, I know. Do you know what you might have to do in order to treat people this way and let your speech be gentle and let your speech be gracious and let your speech be thoughtful for them. You know what you might have to do? You might, call me crazy, have to start saying no to a lot of things because you can't give that to all the things that you say yes to. It requires too much time. And so some people hate that idea. Then what are you talking about? I can't max out all of the pleasure that I want from all the world has to offer. Can I have a thousand friends? I do on Facebook. Actually, I've got a little more than that on Facebook, <laughs> just saying. But I, can, I, can, I, can, I, can, I not, can I not max out and be gracious and gentle with everybody? And Paul would say no, because if you're going to give each person what they need from you, you have to spend time with them. You have to listen to them, which means you can't go to all the things you're going to and be involved in all the things you're involved in. You literally can't do it. You know why? You're finite, not infinite. 
The new self, Paul says, is called here to spend its time in prayer at the feet of Jesus and spend its time thinking about other people. This is the best use of the time. In the words of Marva J. Dawn, she's one of my favorite scholars, read everything she's ever written. She's written like 50 books. Marva J. Dawn, she's brilliant in her dying days, but she said this, such practices, according to the world, are a royal waste of time. They won't get you anywhere in a dog-eat-dog, I'm more famous than you are, striving for success, got-to-get-ahead world. These are totally irrelevant in the culture that surrounds us. But they are the language of grace. They are the culture of faith. And they are the characteristics of the new kingdom. The old self only had time for one thing, self. And Paul here is closing out this whole book and this whole discussion about old and new self by saying the new self is marked by a total paradigm shift in its relationship to time. It doesn't think about me primarily anymore. It sits at the feet of Jesus and lets Jesus set the agenda and set the pace. And when Jesus is setting the agenda and setting the pace, normally he's lifting my eyes off of myself to someone that I can go minister to and someone that I can go love, which might be your kids. You might be going so fast you can't even give your kids gracious, gentle, thoughtful speech. The new self's relationship with time is that the Lord sets the pace, sets the agenda, and tells us what is our best use of time. So how? How in the world would we ever begin to give and spend our time in prayer and give and spend our time on others? Well, it's kind of buried in here, and it's not meant to be in code, but Paul is saying something in here that we may have missed. Look at what Paul says he is longing for, because this is how, this practice of Paul is how we begin to let the Lord set our agenda and set the time and set the pace. Look at what Paul says he hopes for. Look at what Paul says he wants them, the Colossian church, to be praying for him. Who, by the way, he's in prison, in chains, and he says, this is what I want you to pray for me. Look at what he says. Pray for us, this is verse three, to declare the mystery of Christ. And then skipping down, he says, that I may make it clear. Okay, so Paul knows, he, he's called it several times, the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God's grace. He knows that it's not fully understandable. That's why he calls it a mystery. He knows it's not fully explainable. That's why he calls it a mystery. But I wanna, I wanna make the mystery of God's grace to me when I'm, when I'm facing the world and dealing with those who are have-nots. I wanna make it clear. His hope is that his explanation of the mystery would be clear, that it would make sense to people, that it would be understandable in its, in its own way, that it would, there would not be any confusion or clutter in his speech. And so the, the hope is clarity. It's what he wants. So let me ask this question. How good are you at clearly reciting something that you haven't heard in a long time? Like your favorite song or some nostalgic song. This happens all the time at like weddings and, and places where there's like some kind of playlist that you didn't make, or you hear on the radio or something, or on Spotify playlist, like something comes on and you start nodding, you go, I know this song, I love this song, I haven't heard it in a while, but now that I'm hearing it again, I can sing every word. And you probably couldn't have sung every word if I just said, hey, sing me your favorite song right now. That it's way easier to remember every word, it's way easier to be clear about the lyrics of a song when, when the song is playing. 
You have to hear the song over and over again regularly to have clarity in reciting it. Paul wants clarity. What does Paul know is required to get clarity about something? Time with it. Or in the words of Death Cab, you gotta spend some time, love. You gotta spend some time with me. In other words, you and I can't declare the mystery clearly if we don't hear it regularly. That the only way to declare the mystery of grace to people with clarity is to be lost in it ourselves. It's the best way to spend our time. That's why we do this. That's why we gather. It's why you hear the, the word preached, the word sang, the word prayed. It's why you hear the gospel week in and week out. It's why the Lord built in a Sabbath rhythm to your existence. He built in sleep to remind you that you're finite. And he built in the Sabbath to give your soul some rest that you would hear the song over and over and over and over again. So that as the song is echoing in your ears, you're able to then speak it with clarity. Are you kidding me? Can I speak it with clarity? Yeah, I've been hearing it every week for the last trillion years. I can speak it. That's why this gathering is so important. It's so formational for us that the clarity comes the more we spend time with it. It's a lot easier to sing the song when the music is playing. And here's the crazy thing. Perhaps maybe the most mysterious thing about this mystery of grace that we've been talking about for the last three months your Jesus never tires of singing the song to you. He never tires of the music. In fact, the Bible is this outrageous. The Bible actually says he's singing it over you right now. He's singing over you. He's singing the song, and we've got to slow down long enough to stop and hear it. He hasn't stopped singing. We've got headphones in. And so what he's saying, what Paul is saying, what Jesus is saying, what scripture is screaming at us is your Jesus is constantly singing the song over you. The song that you long for clarity with, he's singing it. And so if you want to announce it, if you want to declare it to your family and your friends and yourself with clarity, you've got to keep hearing it. And you maybe this week have spent all your time on you. You maybe have not sat at Jesus' feet. You maybe have not been Mary and been all Martha this week or this month or this year. In fact, you may be in here and you maybe have never sat at the feet of the lover of your soul. And so here's the invitation in these next few moments. Would you spend the next little bit of time with him? He's singing. And the, the, we said this a few weeks ago, but the reason why we corporately sing is because sometimes I don't even want to sing the words that are on the screen. And I need you to sing it to me. And sometimes I do want to sing it, and I need to sing it so that you can hear it from me. And we're going to hear the song, we're going to sing it together, but the invitation would be, would you let the mystery of grace fall over and around you this morning? Would you let the song settle in your ears? I was trying to think of a way to close our series on Colossians, because it's been so good for me. I was trying to write out how would I wrap it all up and tie it all together and, and do the best use of my time with this um, closing before we begin Advent. And literally, as I was writing this sermon this week, um, the angel known as Patty Griffin came on on my Spotify. And she actually closes Colossians perfectly. 
So I'm going to read these words from Patty Griffin's When It Don't Come Easy. And we'll pray and we'll join the song together. She says this. Listen how fitting that this is so, this is so good. Patty, where are you? She says this. It's so perfect. Time keeps moving from a crawl to a run. I wonder if we're going to ever get home. You're out there walking down a highway and all the signs got blown away. Sometimes you wonder if you're walking in the wrong direction. But if you break down, I'll drive out and find you. If you forget my love, I'll try to remind you. And I'll stay by you when it don't come easy. Let's pray. Jesus, those are your words to us. That when we break down, you'll drive out and find us. And when we forget you love, you remind us. And that you stay by us when it's not easy. Many of us are walking down highways feeling all alone and we have, we have obliterated our use of time. And so slow us down now as we rest with you. Slow us down now to hear the song we pray. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.